The One Tough Mother Podcast. The One Tough Mother Show is real talk with special guests, including industry leaders, celebrities, and amazing women who've overcome adversities to work their way to the top and are willing to share their real life lessons. Remember, you don't have to be a mother to be one tough mother. It's all about you. Hi, welcome to the One Tough Mother Show. And this week again, we have a crazy, incredible show, and it's actually being done at Rockefeller Plaza. And it, it, the sights and sounds are amazing here. You have to go to our um, our Instagram and look at it because I have pictures up there and actually video of Tough Brother Seth and I setting up in this incredibly beautiful, beautiful office. But before that, let me just ask you, Seth, so how's everything going with you? Me? Things are going good. Uh Yesterday, um, well, two days ago, I should say, was my son's fifth birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Yeah, Alexander is five. He's a whole hand. Wow, (laughs) the old whole hand. Yes. Um, What was interesting was uh, I went to his school. It was also career day, so I just happened to sign up on his birthday. I thought, why not? So I went in uh, with my recorder, and I recorded his class. I just asked each kid uh, their name and what they like to do. It was pretty funny. It's funny even at a young age how people get nervous with a microphone right away. That's so cute. I love that. Did What was the craziest one? Do you know any really crazy ones? I um, mean, there are five. There had to have been a ton of like really off the wall things. One kid got off to a good start and he's like, and my favorite thing is to do and I like to eat food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, great. You like to eat food. Um, yeah, so it, it, he sounded like he was all fired up. He knew what he wanted to say, and then he just lost it. Oh, that's um, cute. It was, yeah, one girl was struggling, and I kind of had to help her through it. And uh, uh, one girl said she likes to play with my son at the playground. I don't know what's going on there, but I put a stop to it. Oh, stop it. Yes. My, my son does that. No, they're not your boyfriend. They're school friends, school friends, whatever the nah. case. <laughs> well, that's daughter, right? I, no, I was just kidding. I didn't, she said it was cute, though. Um, oh. And I stayed and they sang happy birthday and I brought cupcakes in. You could bring cupcakes? Oh, uh, yeah. They're nut free. I know. It's so weird though. Nowadays, little, it's like everything you take to school has to be like a celery they're packaged, stick. They were packaged and there were mini cupcakes. So, Oh, that's cute. And you know what's weird, really weird? And I'll tell our audience this. It's very odd that Seth's son turned Five on May first, and my granddaughter turned three on May first. That's so bizarre. It's a good birthday. I like that date. Yeah, actually, I didn't know there was like a big significance to May first. May first has something to do with fertility because of spring and everything going on. So everybody's like, "Oh, you got to look up May first. That's like a great, great birthday to have." So look it up. I didn't even know all that. I just thought it sounded good. No, no. They were like telling me all about it. I was like, oh, cool. But yeah, there's something to do with it, like the renewance of spring and everything happening and fertility. And it's just really interesting. And I started teaching him how to ride his bike a little bit. Started with the training wheels. Oh, oh, we got a bike? We got a bike. Oh, what, is he wild? Was he super happy? He's pretty happy. Oh, that's yeah. cool. I remember those days. Gosh, it seems so weird, but I'm glad. I'm, I'm well. Happy birthday, Alexander! And I'm I'm glad that and happy birthday to my beautiful granddaughter, Bryn Bryn. And yes. um, it was a great day. So everybody had May first birthdays. Happy birthday! 
Happy birthday. And you know what? The weather has been incredible. I'm so, so excited. It was so nice to come into the city today and come to 10 Rockefeller Plaza. And it was gorgeous out and everybody was outside, like sitting around and having a good time. And I I was super excited by it because it's really been, it was really the first really, really nice day to kick off the season. I agree. So it was uh, hot. It was actually hot. It was it was amazing. So we're we're excited to be at this beautiful, beautiful office. And I want to thank so much. We want to thank from the bottom of our hearts, Dr. Tanya Elliott, a leading allergist in New York City and chief medical officer of the nationwide preventative health company, EHE. Dr. Elliott helps people focus on true health care, keeping you healthy not sick care, and has been a feature on multiple television shows, including, well, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, um, ABC World News Tonight, um, Good Morning America, Rachel Ray, and she is the co-host on the Emmy Award-winning The Doctor's TV Show. As a medical director of Doctor on Demand, Dr. Elliott displayed extraordinary achievements. She has actually served as a telemedicine physician, seeing thousands of patients through real-time face-to-face video consultation. I mean, that's incredible to me. It's with great pleasure we welcome to the One Tap Mother Show, Dr. Tanya Elliott and Dr. T. Thank you so much for having us in your beautiful, beautiful offices. How did you come into the field of allergy and immune health care? So allergy, the, the practice of allergy is all about detective work because allergic reactions last less than 24 hours. And so for the most part, considering it takes about three weeks to see a specialist, um, you know, by the time somebody comes in to see me, their allergic reaction is gone. And we have to really work together to piece you know what it was that triggered that reaction so I have to say you know what foods have you eaten what spices did you add where were you did anybody else around you have symptoms and we kind of figure out and come to that diagnosis together and then all the testing is kind of just the confirmation but everything about allergy is really in the history so I really like to be the detective and work with the patient to try to figure out what the heck happened. That's so fun that sounds really cool because when I think of allergies and I think everybody thinks of this because when I said it to Seth they they think of allergies like hay fever like it's spring and everybody sneezes. but there's so much much more to this. Yes and we know the food allergy is certainly on the rise and we have peanut allergy that's yeah. you know, 10 times higher than it was 15 to 20 years ago. So there's a food allergy piece you can be allergic to, you know, the typical things like peanuts and tree nuts and eggs and milk and soy, but also spice allergy is on the rise and can affect up to Ooh. 2% of adults. Who would have thought? That's um, insane. So there's that piece of it. There's a whole food allergy world. And then we do have the hay fever type of stuff. Um, there are tons of indoor allergies that we consider our winter allergies that impact us year-round. There are drug allergies or allergies to insect stings and different kinds of bug bites, uh, medication allergies. So there are a lot of ways in which allergies can impact people day-to-day. So that's why it's kind of a new mystery each and every time somebody comes into my office. I can imagine. Now, do you treat babies? We do. I treat all ages because, again, allergies can impact people at all aspects of their life. And you see it in infants, babies, people who are first born up until school age. And then you see another peak when people are around age 17 or so, all the way up until people are age 35 to 40. Wow, that's incredible. Now, what can we give our children that have 
hay fever or they have seasonal allergies like this. My two granddaughters have really bad allergies and they're three and four. I mean, I don't, we don't want to medicate. Like, you know, you want to, I don't want to start them off in life with medicine. My 10 year old too. Yeah. So one of the things about allergies, the number one treatment is avoidance of your trigger. So it really isn't medication. So first things first, let's figure out what exactly it is that's triggering or causing your allergy, right? Right. And then the second is how do we allergy proof your home or allergy proof your environment? So here's a tip for little kids when they're outside playing in the grass and stuff and they come indoors, dump them in the shower and rinse them off because pollen gets stuck in their hair. It can get stuck in their eyelashes. Oh my gosh. So one thing I recommend a lot, you see, on some of my social media take a little baby shampoo and do little eye scrubs for them to get the pollen outside the lids because a lot of kids you see they're like rubbing their eyes and stuff there's a term for it it's called allergic shiners it looks like they have dark circles underneath their eyes so you know the eyes are often a you know a a hidden source of allergy and pollen it's good my 10 year old cried we baseball practice in a park with a lot of trees he'll be crying in the car his eyes are hurting him so much yes you want to maybe get him a pair of cool sunglasses and stuff to wear to protect the eyes like oh, that. that's a great a idea, right? Yeah. I'm glad, see, I'm glad I came. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. We're glad you're here, too. <laughs> anyway, so what about, let's jump back to the rise of peanut allergies and, and allergies for food. Why? Okay, so this is something to do with the hygiene hypothesis and how, you know, at least when I was growing up, my mom used to chase me around with hand sanitizer and could have put, would have put me in a bubble if she could have, and we avoid exposures to different kinds of germs and things. And so what we learned was that when you limit exposures in the first year of life to things like pets and the good bacteria and things like that, our immune system doesn't develop properly. And so then it kind of, it's sitting around and your immune system is getting bored and it's like, well, I'm just sitting here doing nothing. And then when it does get exposed, to new foods that you've maybe delayed introduction like with peanuts so if I'm somebody who has a bored immune system because I've kept been kept clean with hand sanitizer and then certain foods have been you know kept from me and then I'm two years old and this is the first time I'm introduced to something like peanut my immune system is like all right let's do this I'm on it and then you develop an allergic response and we found that we actually found that early introduction of peanut into the diet actually decreases the risk of developing allergies that's in, what about when you're older? Because I, my daughter-in-law said, I ate peanut butter my whole life, and then all of a sudden one day, boom, I'm allergic. It can happen. I mean, we see it less with peanut. We see it more with shellfish, actually, in adulthood. Um, part of it is that the use of antacids, actually, and alcohol have been Ooh. shown to be risk factors for the development of allergy in adulthood. Wow. And the reason why is it impacts the gastric acid and stuff in your stomach and your stomach lining. So it makes it a little funky, and your your gut or your GI tract tends to be the most tolerant. So if, it, if you ingest something, your immune system is the one that's like, okay, this is fine. This isn't an allergy. Everybody calm down. But when you impact that acidity in your stomach and the gastric lining, then we start to see the immune system getting a little funky in the GI tract and starting to trigger and cause allergies. Can Can there be a random occurrence of that? There could be a random occurrence, although the incidence or the chances of you developing a peanut allergy or a food allergy as an adult is a lot lower than it is when you're a kid. Now, that said, we do see, as I mentioned, the shellfish piece, and we see a lot of cross-reactivity Um, of the hay fever type pollens and things. So one of the most common things that I'll see in adults is they say that they get an itchy mouth after they eat fresh fruits, like apples and pears and cherries, so pitted fruits. And what we found is that those people had seasonal allergies growing up as a kid that didn't get treated. Now we think, okay, well, how are those two things correlated? Well, if you have a tree pollen allergy, where do 
apples grow on. They grow on right. trees. And mm. so over time, if those allergens don't get treated, the body thinks, oh, wow, when I take a bite of this apple, that's that same type of pollen that was in the tree because the proteins look really similar. So that is something that we have seen in adulthood, and it's something called pollen food allergy syndrome. Wow, that is insane, right? I'm telling you, allergy is really cool. It sounds cool, actually. (laughs) I'm loving this. What about tree nuts when you're older and you suddenly have a tree nut issue? So you can see that similarly, actually, hazelnuts cross-react with tree pollen as well. So you can get that itchy mouth, especially when people eat, like, the fresh form of the nuts before Mm -hmm. they're roasted. So you can see that as well. But, again, the most common allergens that we see in adulthood are shellfish allergens. Yeah, actually, my my son-in-law has a shellfish. What's interesting, what you said before, is it seems like... It's kind of the trend in, in medicine now is everything's about the gut and the gut health. And it sounds like allergies is no different, right? Right. I mean, to a certain extent. Right. There's something to be said about that microbiome and the balance of the good bacteria. And it certainly influences your immune system. So you want to make sure that you have a balance of good bacteria in your gut. Because then again, it keeps your immune system stimulated. You have the right kind of balance of good and bad bacteria. When you wipe everything out, again, the immune system is like, wait, what happened? I'm supposed to have this bacteria here. I'm supposed to be fighting against things. And it gets a little little bit you know wonky and then that's when allergies are triggered one thing that people need to understand and remember is that allergen allergy the allergic response is part of the immune system and so back in the day you know we're talking caveman days the allergic response used to be what fought against parasites and parasitic infections and so over time when we stopped having exposure to parasites we stopped really needing that component of our immune response so it's interesting that when people do have parasitic infections, that's why we don't really see allergies as much in the underdeveloped world. It's because that allergic component of the immune system is busy fighting off parasites. So when you, when you take that away, again, that allergy component of the immune system has nothing to do and it wants to pitch in and help right. when you're fighting against infections. So we've really brought it on ourselves, actually. <laughs> I mean, just I mean, dietary, yeah. Yeah, and we see an increased incidence in the developed world, absolutely. Oh, wow, that's incredible. And now you can eat, everybody's like, oh, I got to get a probiotic I gotta have you can eat a probiotic I mean you can eat to help your gut health because people think they have to take a pill for a probiotic and that's not at all true there's ways to eat for that right yes absolutely kimchi is something that you can have or the kombucha drink I don't know if you've tried that Mm -hmm. but that's pretty fun so things that are kind of fermented sauerkraut yogurt has probiotic in it as well so you know I'm a big fan of getting your nutrients and the things that you need from foods absolutely me too I'm not a big fan of taking meds you wouldn't recommend a probiotic in any case or is there certain cases you would well for people who are not interested in supplementing their diet with food and they would prefer to just say listen I'd rather just you know make sure I'm getting probiotic than have to think about my food choices then for that population I'd say yes take a probiotic well that's kind of what the yogurt industry was built on streaming the probiotic and in marketing yeah. for a billion years actually and what happens is yogurt is so full of sugar people were just so interested in getting the probiotic part of it they didn't look at the sugars and that's one of those things about labels so a lot of those labels that say we have probiotic we're gluten-free marketing. all these things it's all marketing guys all those food labels are all marketing if you look at like chips ahoy cookies all of a sudden it's saying gluten-free none of that stuff is actually regulated by the fta and that's really fda it's really important to remember that that a lot of this is just marketing and what, right. dri- what drives me crazy too is uh i saw a study about natural flavors everything says natural flavors there's no definition for natural right. flavors. Right. What's a natural flavor? It's it's nothing. Right. It's, it, they don't even tell you what it is. It just right. says natural flavors. And you have no idea. Now I try to avoid when I see that. I try to avoid it. Right. It's it's crazy. What if, tell me about how sugar affects allergies. 
You know, I don't know that there's a major correlation between sugar intake and allergies. Um, You know, the biggest thing as it relates to allergies are, unfortunately, your genetics and then your environment. So, again, going back to, you know, if you're thinking about having a kid, exposures early on are really the key. And actually, for even for people that have allergies in their family, that's those are the ones that are it's particularly important to train those immune systems up front and get those infants exposed to allergens up front so that their immune system sees everything and learns everything because it's the most tolerant when you're an infant when it's learning everything so you want to avoid um, you know keeping your child in a bubble in the first 12 months of life right dr. T what about eczema is there eczema is so I like I can't even tell you I'm shocked at how many people have it now. I mean, when I was growing up, you didn't see it very often. Now, my two granddaughters have it. My grandson has it. It's just amazing to me that there's eczema everywhere. Yeah, when you think about eczema, so we call it in in the allergy world atopic dermatitis. It just means, you know, on the skin irritation, essentially. That's part of the allergic journey. And so oftentimes, it's the first area of exposure. So before you even kids get the runny nose, they start off with the eczema. And that's one of the first signs of it. And in infants, the most common cause of that eczema is from foods. And then because it takes six months for people to develop an allergen, that's why I don't think that little, you know, when a little kid is born out of the womb, they're not going to have hay fever. It takes at least their exposure to one spring for them to then have seen it and then developed an allergy to it. So it takes about six to 12 months to develop an environmental allergy. But that's typically the first sign. So if you notice that your kid is having rashes in the creases of their arms and then on the back of their knees that's suggestive of the beginnings of that allergic journey so the next thing that's going to happen they're going to get the congestion and the runny nose and the itchy eyes and then if that's not treated the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to develop asthma and one allergy begets another begets another and so if you don't get your allergies treated early on or addressed early on you know it's not just a lifestyle disease people actually develop long-term chronic issues from untreated allergies Wow, that's, what do you do when you see your baby starting to, you take him right to the doctor and ask to see an allergist? Yes, to see an allergist. And, you know, one of the things that I, I want to caution is don't have your, your doctor, your pediatrician just do a blood test. They're going to do a blood test, do a bunch of different things and a bunch of different foods and confuse the heck out of you. Right. And so there's really no evidence to do a whole bunch of blood tests to a bunch of different foods because at the end of the day, if the kid is eating the food and not having a reaction to it, it doesn't matter what the blood test shows. I oftentimes, by the time they come to me as the allergist, they already have like, oh, well, my doctor said I was allergic to peanuts and milk and eggs and soy and all that. We're going to end up with nutritional deficiencies if we continue to go down that route because when I talk to the patients and I say, okay, well, Does your kid eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Well, yeah, they do. But, you know, now we're going to stop it because of these blood tests. Don't stop it because the blood tests are not what define allergies. When we go back to what I first said, it's all about detective work and the history and us figuring out that trigger up front. Then the test will just confirm that result. So you don't want to do the test first because we have what's called a false positive result about 50% of the time. What about migraines? A lot of people say they get migraines from allergies. Is that true? So you can have migraines triggered by food, and oftentimes people then think, oh, I must have a food allergy. But oftentimes things like chocolate can trigger migraines. Aged cheeses can trigger migraines. So there are a number of different foods. And so I recommend to some people who do have chronic migraines to keep a food diary to see whether or not within a couple of hours of eating it, they develop a migraine. So that's one piece where they're, they're kind of a correlation. It's more of an intolerance to that food that's triggering the migraine. Then the other piece of it is chronic 
nasal and sinus inflammation over time that's not treated. So hay fever that's out of control over time can absolutely trigger headaches and in some people trigger migraines. Wow, that's that's insane. Do you, do you recommend uh, sinus rinses and things like that, neti pots? Yes, I do. They have been shown to be effective. You know, it's just like you wash your hands and you get all the germs out. Well, this washes out your nasal passages and your sinuses. The one thing that I would recommend, though, and I you know caution, don't use bottled water. Don't use tap water because then you introduce infection and bacteria, even with bottled water. So you wanna make sure that you purchase distilled water or you boil the water to the boiling point, let it cool just a little bit, and then use it in your nasal passages. So not even filtered water? Mm-mm. Oh, that's what I've been using. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I didn't hear that, that's okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm trying to learn. So if I boil the water and let it cool? You can boil and let it cool. You know, the one thing that I, you know, is you, depends on how long you let it cool and then something kind of falls in there or you just, you know, made a pot of sauce with that same pot, right? <laughs> so you want to make I sure that, that. So distilled water, if you purchase that, you know, at the pharmacy, that's your best bet. Then you have to, you don't have to worry. I will do that. Oh, that's awesome. I have to ask you about your role on the doctors. I, I'm just so impressed. First of all, you're on Doctor on Demand, which I think is amazing. That's To be chosen to be on Doctor on Demand, I think is just very impressive. And, um, you know, Dr. Phil and his son, right? They partnered yeah. together to do that. And um, I think that's a, it's a fabulous thing for anybody that needs it. Let's talk about that one first. Explain to us exactly what Doctor on Demand is. Yeah, so that was a company that I was a medical director for, and I was with them. I mean, literally, they they started in November 2013. I joined in January 2014. So I'm going to tell you a little bit. Of, I'm going to tell you my, my Doctor on Demand story, okay? So as I was an allergist, I was practicing on Park Avenue in New York City, and I kind of got sick of patients coming in and saying, oh, doc, I had this rash. It was so bad three weeks ago. You don't even know. It was terrible. And I would say, okay, well, do you have a picture? No, I don't have a picture. Um, okay, do you have any rash that's left over? Anything? No, I don't. And so I really kind of was left with, all right, you know, tell me what the rash looked like. Right. Again, going back to that history piece, but the I was lacking the sketch artist. Yeah, right. draw a picture. Like, yeah, exactly. It was like the eyewitness and what, how reliable is an eyewitness kind of thing. So I said, God, I wish I had a picture or better yet, I wish I could have seen you in real time. And then I started thinking, well, what if I did a Skype visit with a patient so they can show me what their rash was? Or, you know, maybe I can let them take a high resolution photo and upload it to me. So that was one thing where I was thinking, wow, how can I leverage technology to improve my specialty? And then the other piece of it was, was I kept talking about avoidance of allergic triggers. So, you know, if I said to you, you have dust mite allergy, I would say, well, do you have a carpet in your bedroom? Do you have curtains or drapes? And I thought, man, I'm saying the same thing over and over again to these people. I wish I could just see into their house. I can point out the couple of things that they're allergic to. And we know that dust mite avoidance really helps to cure people of their dust mite allergy or at least temporize their dust mite allergy. So I said, man, maybe I'll start going to people's houses. And then I start, and then I thought, well, no, it would take too much money for for an Uber, I'd only get to see three or four people. So I said, again, what if I do Skype? So I told my mom this story and I said, mom, I'm gonna start a business. I'm gonna Skype with patients. I'm gonna do video tours of their home. I'm gonna make a million bucks. <laughs> my mom calls me one day and she's like, Tanya, Dr. Phil stole your idea. <laughs> And I'm oh like, boy. what? And she said, Dr. Phil stole your idea. He has this company. It's called Doctor on Demand. And this is what they're doing. They have doctors doing these video visits. So lo and behold, I looked up Doctor on Demand. It was November 2013. They had just launched. And I said, I'm doing it. I want to be a part of it. And so I started in January 14 as a telemedicine doctor. 
And one of the most common reasons people would call up were for allergies and rashes and sinus issues and colds and flu and all this sort of stuff. So I started to test out the theory and I'd seen about 7,000 patients or so myself through video. And then I became their medical director and I helped to build out a nationwide physician practice of all doctors wow. working from home, interacting with patients like this. And I found it really improves access to care and it really helps us identify, not just for allergies, but it helps us identify an environmental context that we would have never seen before. It's the virtual home visit. Right. There was something to be said about a doctor showing up at your house with right. their black box and, yeah. you know, their stethoscope, right? Full circle. Exactly. Yeah. So that's my doctor on demand story. That's so cool. <laughs> and you've seen 7,000 patients yes. doing this? Wow. Yeah. And, you know, do they take insurance on Doctor On Demand? Yeah, so they do. They take insurance, and then also it may be covered by your employer, or there's also wow. a route where you can just go and pay with your credit card. And what about the doctors? You've you've actually been on the doctors several times because I watched a couple of the episodes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I've been on the doctors um, first on a big iPhone, kind of remotely showing how to do a video visit, which was kind of fun, and then hosting the show. Um, and I like to do, you know, the segments and stuff that really help people leverage technology to improve their daily life. So, you know, we did a segment that helped uh, must have apps for busy moms and one of them was called mommy nearest which helped you find activities and things to do in an area there was another thing where you can use an app to find a babysitter and all these sorts of ways in which you can leverage technology to improve your day-to-day -day life and to improve your health care wow that is so cool i have to find that episode yes yeah, i have yeah. lots of little I'll send, ones. I'll send you the link oh, oh that's so cool <laughs> tell us about you're the chief medical officer for the nationwide it's a preventative health company what is it and what is what do you do okay so I um, I got recruited by EHE it, um, they're the nationwide preventive health company it stands for engaging healthy employees because we work with companies to keep their workforce happy and healthy I was recruited by them because they really wanted to be the thought leaders in clinical prevention and from my perspective clinical prevention and digital health are kind of one in the same because everybody works with their smartphone for everything that they need to do day to day and so if I can push out information that's useful to you and relevant to your daily life by leveraging technology and using your smartphone wow that's really great so what does clinical prevention mean so you had if you, you guys have kids right every year you would bring them for their well child visit and they would get checked on their milestones make sure they were making friends make sure they got all the vaccines they need all the building blocks of life and what happens after you turn 18 what happens to those visits? Right, right. You don't have those visits anymore. Everybody drops off, and then you don't access the healthcare system again until you are really sick or you have diabetes and high blood pressure or depression or anxiety or all these things. And then it's just really strange. This Our healthcare system today is really a sick care system. It's sick care, it's not true healthcare. And so for whatever reason, I think it's kind of strange. I spent you know one day learning about how to prevent diseases and then the rest of my medical school training learning how to treat diseases. And again, all the benefits exist for disease management programs. Well, what the heck? How about disease prevention programs? Right. Let's, you know, let's get on it. And so really what my mission is with this company is to train, and again, a nationwide workforce to be able to deliver clinical prevention. So when you're 40, you get the vaccines you need, you get the mammogram, you get screened for heart disease, you get screened for all the, you know, for, for various cancers and what have you. And we give you the building blocks 
so that you can be successful in your everyday life because that's what prevention is about. If I can manage your stress levels now, then you're not going to develop hypertension in three to five years. If I can talk to you as a physician about financial worry or if you're the primary caregiver of aging parents or you're going through a divorce, that's the, that's sort of the, the narrative and the conversation that goes on between the doctor and patient when we're talking about clinical prevention or lifestyle medicine. And so the fancy term of it is we focus on the psychosocial and behavioral determinants of health. Those are the real health risk factors. I don't want my doctors waiting for something to become abnormal in blood work right. or your blood pressure to be through the roof before they're triggered to do something. Manage so that's the what stress. we do. That's right. Manage the stress in the first place and then all the other stuff goes away. That's amazing. And you know what? It's, it sounds like it's an incredible program because everybody's taking an antidepressant now. It's like every time I speak to somebody, they're either taking an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety pill, and I don't know where that's all coming or, from either. Or a pain pill. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, th- if you think about the opioid epidemic, right, for right, right now, I mean, this is a really big deal. Life expectancy for the first time in over 30 years is decreasing. And it's not because we've, we're not good at helping with cancer because there have been advances there and so people are living long with cancer, longer with cancer, not because of a lack of advances in cardiovascular disease, it's because of the opioid epidemic. But what does our society do about it? They say, well, you know, people should be walking around with the treatment for an opioid overdose in their hands because you could save a life. Oh, I see. So we should wait until somebody overdoses and then we can save their life as opposed to screening for anxiety up front, screening for depression, screening for stress, screening for PTSD, screening for all those things up front, screening for people that are at risk for musculoskeletal injury so they don't end up being depressed and hurting themselves because ultimately that's what puts them on pain pills in the first place. So it's really our goal to make sure that we drive education to prevention programs as opposed to saying, opposed to our society being okay with saying, okay, well, if there's an overdose, I got Narcan in my pocket, so we're okay. Yeah, and now you're responsible for someone else's life. And I understand all that. My son is a police officer. Right. And he said in the beginning it was trained, he was the one that was trained for his unit to carry the Narcan, so he would have to come. Now everybody carries it. Right. Because you don't have, because it has to be everybody carrying it. And he said we have applied it to some people several times because they know that we're going to come and we're going to apply it so they're just going to go ahead and do what they have to do yeah so we have to do something about it and you know ultimately it comes from the smart consumer to stand up and say you know what i'm going to my doctor because i feel well and i want to stay well right absolutely so just real quick let's run over a couple tips again so everybody knows this is dr t and she's got it down she's pretty smart right <laughs> wow. absolutely. you've been to so you did seven thousand house visits you said video visits video. Oh, Vi- i mean that's what i meant, yes. I meant video house visits, what we <laughs> talked about so you've seen a lot of different things in the home i guess that's what you're getting at i want to hear those what you must have learned something too by doing all those yeah i learned a number of things i remember when you know when i ask patients if they have carpet in their bedroom or you know in their home and they say no they forget about like the beautiful tapestry they just bought from turkey that's hanging on the wall oh yeah (laughs) wow so i mean i would i would encourage people to you know do a video encounter there aren't a ton of people out there that can actually take a video tour of your home but i am one of them so if you follow me on social we can book an appointment 
Um, but that's one of those things that you, you know, that I would recommend doing. Take pictures of your house if you're going in to see your doctor. Take pictures of your rashes. Um, ultimately, you know, document that so that you could do the detective work together um, and get see an allergist sooner rather than later. It, it, these are great tips because everybody, you know, when you have children, everybody gives children stuffed animals. And I used to say that was the biggest. It's the biggest source of dust mite allergy. That's another, that's a huge one. The same thing with upholstered, you know, fancy pillows and stuff and your fancy bedding you spend all this money on. And guess what? Dust, dust, dust is living in those things. Yeah, and they're pretty gross looking, those little dust mites. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> what, what can you do about the dust mites and the carpet and everything? What, what? So you want to not have carpets, or at least if you do have carpets in your home, you want to um, vacuum them once a week and uh, make sure that you're using a HEPA vacuum. Um, the other thing that you want to do is remove any curtains or drapes, and you want to go the route of blinds. Um, the other thing you want to do is have a dehumidifier in the home. That's one of the biggest things, a dehumidifier. So a lot of people with allergies, they feel congested, and then they feel like they can't breathe, so they put a humidifier in their bedroom. Dehumidifier. dehumidifier. Dust mites love humidity. So you're just making that. They drink the water out of the air, the moisture out of the air, and then they eat little dust. And so you actually want to keep the relative humidity in your home at less than 50%. There's nothing wrong with using a local humidified treatment. I recommend to patients take a pot of hot water add some fresh ginger bring it to a boil and breathe in that humidified air that local humidified treatment but the one thing that you want to avoid is have a humidifier in your home because that's going to trigger dust mite allergies as well as mold allergies wow that's really good advice i have to move (laughs) that's the other thing if you move to colorado there is no dust mite allergy oh you know what i lived out there and i don't remember having allergies there we go there we go. All right. we'll start <laughs> okay, well, there you go, Seth. Bye bye. Anyway, thank you, Dr. Elliot. Thank you. You're fabulous. Thank you. You're a fabulous guest. I'm extremely excited to get this show. Call out. me Dr. T. Okay, Dr. T. <laughs> we got gotcha. you. All right. Anyway, until next so time. everybody check you out. Where can they find you? So you can follow me at, at Dr. Tanya Elliot. Um, Instagram is really fun. I like to post pictures of all my travels as well as give you health hacks, travel hacks, you know, daily life and digital health tips. Um, so go ahead and follow me there. And yeah, come come visit me in my Rock Center office too. Yeah, this this really rocks. This office is definitely <laughs> a beautiful office. Yes, it is. So thank you. Have a great, great day. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. The One Tough Mother Podcast. Real talk with amazing women who have worked their way to the top and want to share their real life lessons with you. And we're back. And guess what we have? Of course, it's headlines and headaches. And it's May 1st, Seth. What do we have going on? Well, um, the Avengers makes box office history. I actually was, I helped because I went. You did go? I my, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I should say my brother helped. He bought the ticket for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it's just the budget was huge and, and I guess it paid off because the biggest opening box office ever, opening weekend, estimated $630 million globally. That's a weekend. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't even opened yet in China and Russia. So, um, in in U.S., it estimated about 250 million alone. It edged out uh, Star Wars: The Force Awakens for top domestic spot, I think ever. Um, Disney holds nine of the top ten domestic openings ever, and six of those come from Marvel. Over the past decade, Disney films featuring Marvel characters have brought in a combined 15.3 billion according to CNN. And that number is only going to go up. I mean, ticket prices will go up. The thing is that you're invested. I'm invested in these movies. I've seen them all. So once you see them, like you got to continue. Dude, how was uh, it? Was it good? 
it was intense, but you know, it's funny. My mom came along cause some, um, my brother's friend couldn't make it last minute. So, uh, uh, my brother brought my mom along who was not really into it. So she was like, well, what's the big deal? I said, well, you're, you're coming in 10 years after this started. So you're right. a little late. It's like, yeah, you, you really have to kind of, this isn't, I gotta say for black Panther was amazing. I don't know if you saw black Panther. No, Mm-mm. It was great. And that's a, to me that that worked as a standalone movie. Like you didn't have to see all the other movies to appreciate that. And it was just a great movie. Oh, okay. Uh, but this is part of a story, a, a storyline that's been going on through Captain America movies, Thor movies, Iron Man movies. I don't want to bore our, our audience, but it it was pretty intense. It brought all the characters together and, and it was, um, and the, the technology just keeps getting better. So it just looks, looks better and better. Every movie. It, it was, it was pretty awesome. Our creative director, uh, Christine went to see it and she said, you know, I, I just, she goes, I get so vested in these movies. She said, because these characters, as you just follow these characters and get so involved in them. Again, I, I'm not part of that. I don't, I don't watch them. So I don't know, but she was really psyched about going to see it. I mean, you know, I grew up, you know, getting, getting comic books and everything and, you know, uh, Captain America and Iron Man, Hulk, Thor, all these comic books. And, uh, it's pretty cool to watch them come to life. Oh, that's really awesome. Without a doubt. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you're into the movies, go see it. But if you're going to go see this and haven't seen the other movies, you're going to be a little bit lost. So you might want to catch up. Okay. Okay. Let's move on. Childcare bites into us living costs. The the cost of childcare. Oh, I, don't I know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the ch- cost of childcare may be biting more deeply into Americans' budgets, particularly middle class and wealthy Americans. Quartz reports uh, citing data from a 2015 study at Arizona State University. While the data shows an increase in cost per- for poor households, many have been priced out of childcare and thus don't show up in the statistics. According to the report, families with one child under five spend a median of $5.41 per hour and $8,320 per year on childcare. Although high-income families are increasingly investing in better preschool and daycare programs, more than half of low-income American families use family members as caregivers, according to the, the Pew Research Center. It is. I'm telling you, I'm about to have my fourth kid, and it is um, – it's tough. It is you know, brutal. My, really brutal. My, daughter, my daughter's born on October 5th, so she misses the September 30th cutoff. And we're like, wow, that's like another whole year of paying for you know, child care. Right. You know, if we need it or whatever, unless we can come somehow sneak her in. I don't know. It's funny. Because, it's, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's funny because I went to the post office to mail a bunch of stuff. And um, the woman there had just had a baby. The baby's, I guess, five months old. And she has a two, almost two-year-old. And I'm like, what are you doing for child care? She goes, my mother retired. So that's what happened with her. Like her mother retired to take care of her kids. Uh, some retirement. That's more work than working. Yeah. That's tough. I feel bad for the the grandmoms that kind of do that. It's 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 a lot to ask of them. Yeah, know? I think so too because like they spent their life raising their kids and working, and so they get to a certain point and then they retire, raise your kids and work. It's a tough it's a tough gig having a, a one and a half, almost two year old, and then a newborn baby. No doubt, uh, as I'm about to uh, have another one. Yes. So. <laughs> which leads into our next story, which is great. Having a baby in America is risky. Great. Um, the United States, which spends more on medical care than any other country, has the worst maternal mortality rate in the developed world, according to NPR and ProPublica. The American College of Obstetrician Gynecologists is now calling for a new model that includes outreach to new moms in the crucial weeks after childbirth, as well as making postpartum care an ongoing process. Um, I, I didn't know that. That's, that's, uh, that's alarming. 
Yeah, it was really shocking when I read that too. I was like, really? I mean, you, first of all, there should always be something for postpartum. Postpartum uh, care is, is huge in my mind, but I was shocked about the other part of it. I mean, come on, that's really, I, I'm so over the insurance, insurance companies, healthcare issue, I can't even take it. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Um, let's hope everything goes well with my next. I'm sure. So far, so good yeah. with everybody. Yes. Uh, this one I relate to very much. The dangers of being nice at work. Having a supportive and overly cordial work culture can undermine new and innovative ideas, argues uh, Jonas Sachs in an article for Quartz. Office environments that stress positivity and downplay conflict can suppress the tension needed to surface ideas and avoid bad decisions. According to Sachs, good as it feels, the emphasis on niceness leads to poor decision-making and low levels of creativity by limiting the number of inputs a group will consider and diverting focus away from risk-taking and results. That's not what I meant. I meant like the guys are kind of mean at work. They seem to do better and get further along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really like, uh, but for this, um, I feel like you got to find a middle ground, right? I think you have to be nice and respectful, but also be able to hash stuff out and be able to sit around and brainstorm and and that's what drives me crazy. The companies I've worked for, they don't really use the team. And, you know, I, I really believe in getting a consensus. You hire people because they're supposed to be good at their jobs and, and you don't bring them in to help or get their opinions on stuff. Then you're just doing yourself a disservice. So I agree a hundred percent because when it's, yeah. you know, when somebody at the top is like, okay, the decision is this, everybody talking over, what do you think of this? But you already know what the outcome is. You don't even put your, you don't even put your heart into it. It, it becomes actual work instead of trying to come up with a solution for something that you might have a great opinion on. And um, for me, a lot of times I was not even like brought in. I was like, wow, I have 20 plus years experience and you're not even talking to me. Oh, they, okay. you, yeah, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're lost, mister. Yeah, that's right. Damn it. All right. All right. I'm sick of this story. Let's move on. Move on. Americans desperately want to raise. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> Most Americans would quit watching Game of Thrones for, for life in exchange for a 10% pay raise, reports CNBC. I don't know. Game of Thrones is pretty good. <laughs> I might need like 15, 20%. I don't know. I'd have to negotiate that. Um, there's a survey of, of 1,238 people with, uh, with jobs, and the network also said half would give up social media for five years. Wow. wow. I don't believe that. Me either. It's easy to say, right? Yeah, exactly. While 10% say they would trade their child's right to vote for life. What? What? Right. Blame it on the cost of living, which has outpaced inflation for the last half century, CNBC says. Putting home ownership and even savings beyond the reach of many. Add sluggish wage growth and the face of high, un high employment, and you got a recipe for drastic measures. You know, these surveys are kind of silly though, right? Because it's easy to say something. Yeah, and yeah. You're going to give up your media. kids' right to vote for 10 right. years or whatever no, it was? No, for life. Oh, for, for life. life. Yeah. Stupid. But then again, you know, if you're in the same state, you know, you're like New Jersey, it's always going to be Democratic, no matter what. So I'm just kidding. But yeah. I, I would never do that. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, me neither. That's all we have for headlines and headaches Thank today. goodness. Yay. So that means that mail's in. All right, let's do this. Dear OTM, I can't find a job. Wow, we're full of good news today, right? Right, wow. I, I can't find a job. I'm a divorced 47-year-old female with two teenage kids. I've been working almost 21 years in a management position at the same company. I made enough money to live responsibly and support my children, but not save a dime. 
Well, two years ago, the company sold and new owners brought in their own staff. My job dried up and so was my, so was my opportunities for employment. I've sent out dozens of resumes, been on countless interviews, and even went to the temp employment service and headhunters route, but nothing. Wait, that's not completely true. I've had three offers to work for half the pay and twice as hard. I am stunned. Mother, I can't get a job. They either act like I'm asking for too much money to start or I am too old to understand the ever-changing landscape of business. What should I do? How, at 47 years old, can I be washed up and broke? Oh, boy. Holy cow. Well, <laughs> it's definitely out there because, to be honest with everybody, I've been looking for like something part-time to keep the, the, the show going really strong. And um, everybody wants to hire you as a consultant, but nobody wants to pay. So Seth definitely feels that that crunch too. I mean, at a certain point, you know, people coming out of college will take a job for a third of what you will if you have a family and kids. And employers see that too. But you have to pay for experience. I, I think um, – she has to kind of sit down and really get introspective about what is it I want to do and, and maybe change her approach. I, this is tough. This is hard. It's like, you know, all we can say is you got to keep, obviously you have no choice. You have kids. You got to keep fighting and keep trying and do what you got to do to take care of your family. But just think about, you know, your approach to things, you know, what is it you're passionate about? And I think, um, you know, I, and I feel this. I've been on interviews and, and talked to a lot of companies, even recently. And the confidence—I have confidence, and I, you know, I have confidence in what I do. And I think it's important that you display confidence, and you know, in yourself and in your in your experience. And really, you have to sell yourself. You can't just say, "Well, here's my resume." I'm not saying she did this. I wasn't there, but you can't just be like, Here, "Here's my resume. I have all this experience. I need, you know, I need to be paid this." You have to be passionate about what you do. And if you're not, then you have to find something else you're passionate about that you can make money with. Absolutely. Otherwise, it's going to be, it's going to be a tough go. I, I believe it. And I, and believe me when I tell you this, oh, she didn't sign up, but believe me when I tell you this, whoever wrote this, I have friends who are like, um, they had the same scenario. Everybody says what, when a company's bought out, well, it's going to stay the same, you know, but everybody brings in their own staff and eventually either you phase out or you're, or you're bought out, whatever the case may be. And it's difficult after 40 to get a job. And a friend of mine said that they were applying for jobs on different websites and sending out their resumes. And one of the questions was, are you under 40? Because it's, wow. yeah, because it wasn't legal. No, it's illegal to ask your birth date, I think. I think it's illegal to ask how old you are, but they positioned it like, are you under 40? Wow. Yeah. So it's ridiculous. Yeah, and it's, I've heard this from several of my friends because all companies are, it seems like the whole work industry is in flux and people are out, you know, buying each other out and, and they're all, you know, joining forces and it's putting people out and they've said the same thing over and over. I, you know, I ask for a certain amount of money because I do have a family, a household and children. And basically they look at me like I'm crazy because they can hire somebody else. So, um, I don't know. And the, the other inv advice I'd give, not just to her, but you know, cause she's unemployed now, but people who have jobs, you should always be looking. Always be keeping like, you know, make a little time every week to see what's out there and, and 
don't don't just sit there thinking you got it all made in the shade because you always have to be looking for your next opportunity. Yeah, it's not it's not the day of the gold watch. I don't care what anybody says. You don't work for 40, 50 years and get a gold watch and you know they shake your hand and put you in the newspaper. Not anymore. Mm-mm. Those days are over. Done. But yeah. Let's move on. Let's go. Yeah. Okay. Hang in there. And keep fighting. Yeah, keep going. Uh, email number two. Dear One Tough Mother, where do you guys get your awesome guests? And how and how and what does it take to be on your show? You know, that's funny because a lot <laughs> I have been getting a lot of people like over the past, I don't know, couple months asking to be on the show. And there is I have like a little kind of set criteria, but um they they either reach out to us or I see a story or Seth sees a story on somebody we really think would be an interesting guest because our whole our whole process is about bringing you information, helping you learn lessons, real life lessons. So um, it's kind of just out there, but people do. They email all the time asking to be guests. Yeah, if you feel like you have something to share that um, will help others, definitely reach out to us, right? Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. But you have to be you have to be your authentic self. I mean, you have to be willing to to tell your whole story. And I think that's a little bit. Sometimes people are like, "Oh, I'm, I really don't want to talk about that." But that's what it's about. It's about teaching other people through your real life lessons. So you know, it's up to you. It's all about you. It's all about you. All right, let's do email number three. Dear One Tough Mother, my husband works all week in Saturdays. He is a car salesman. We need the money, so he has no choice, but I hate that I barely see him. We've been married three and a half years, and I feel like we were growing apart. When we were dating and the weekend would roll around, he made it a priority to be available, attentive, and fun, even though we worked all day. We go out to dinner, take in a concert, attend friend and family parties, and spend time having fun. Then on Sunday, we had together day. We hiked, watched movies, spent time at the pool, or went snowboarding. It was wonderful. But now, nothing. When Saturday afternoon comes, he doesn't want to go out after work. He complains every weekend he is tired, and on Sundays, he watches NASCAR. I am so upset. And all he says is, come on, I'm tired. I work six days six days a week. Don't I deserve a day to relax? The truth is, he does. But I miss the old us. I hate being mad or hurt because he doesn't want to hang out with me and do something fun. I miss the old us and hate the new pattern. He actually told me maybe we should have a baby to keep you busy when you're home, and I freaked out. Wow. I would freak out, too. Yeah, me, too. I love my husband. He's a good man and a kind man, but I'm starting to resent his tired, selfish, my-time behavior. Do you or Tough Brother Seth have any suggestions? Uh, what do you say, Seth? Run. No, I'm just no. kidding. Um, it's – you know, look, uh, we've all been in relationships. I'm in one now, and it's a challenge for me, too. And you have to um, – not get mad. Don't get resentful. You have to keep con- you have to keep um, communicating, and you can't communicate in a whiny, complaining way. I know it sounds not fair, but you guys have to sit down and ha- you know have a conversation. Say, look, we got to make some time. Yeah, I agree. And the baby thing, like babies, do not fix relationships. They actually make it more challenging. I know this from experience. Oh my god, they make so it true. Much more challenging. And for him to say that, that's a, that was a red flag for me. Oh, yeah. The rest of it I can see about it's about communication, but that's a red flag. It's like, you know, he needs to understand that this doesn't work for you and that there has to be a compromise and that a baby does not fix a relationship. A baby is a lot of hard work and make and is very taxing on a relationship. So you have to have that 
deep conversation with him and he needs to understand. And what also I would recommend too is you know, for ladies out there, don't let it all build up. Um, you have to communicate. Don't get, don't let it just build up and get more upset, more upset, more upset. You have to communicate and, and, and really just have a adult conversation instead of getting really mad and blowing up. You know, it, it, that's the, the key to all relationships is really just constant communication. Okay. I agree with you a hundred percent. And, um, sometimes people get in like a, a dead, a dead zone, like a pattern. And I understand. Yeah. When, when it's new and exciting, you make time to see each other and, and things are happening and you want to be together. And then when it happens all the time that you're together and you're going on on your lives, your life path, you know, both working, both building towards something, you kind of like put your relationship kind of off to the side. You need to get that back because um, you can't lose who you are or what you were as a couple in the fact that everyday life, if it's that stressful everyday life, you need to sit down and really discuss it and decide how you're going to be together. So I agree with you 100%. And as far as having a baby, and they say, well, he said to me, well, maybe we should have a baby to keep you busy. Let me tell you something. That is the most pathetic thing I've heard because not only will it keep you busy, it'll change your entire life. And a baby isn't from one month to nine months or 10 months or a year. A baby is for the rest of your life. You are raising another human being forever. Even when they're adults, you're still helping, guiding and how, you know, getting people through things. So put that whole thing away because that in itself tells me he's not really thinking. No, and they're not ready for that. No, absolutely not. Because it's a, a baby just adds, like you said, adds stress to the relationship. Because if you think, you know, you're just going to bring this cute little baby in and everything's going to be fine. It's not the way it happens. Agree. So, um, you know, just sit down and talk to each other and figure out, you know, you're going to have to plan things. I mean, Seth, do you plan, you plan stuff with Melissa, right? We do. And, you know, there's been times, don't get me wrong, we've had our rough patches. It's been times where, you know, get overly focused on work or, you know, just stressed about stuff and, and not focusing on each other. But, you know, we, we bring it back together and, and we do. We do plan things. And it's life because you know what, anymore you're working, uh, it seems like 365, 24 seven because of, you know, the internet and cell phones and the access that you have to everybody. You're going to have to shut the phone down. You're going to have to shut the job down and spend some time together. Agree. Okay. So that brings us into, um, our next segment, which is always mother says, and I'm excited about this one. Mother says sometimes the grass is greener on the other side because it's fake. Okay. <laughs> Get it. And it's just recently, this has been brought to my attention because a lot of people have been talking about social media and Facebook and how people perceive that their lives are so fabulous and everything's wonderful. And look at our new baby and look at our wedding and look at this and look at that. But remember, sometimes the grass is greener on the other side because it's fake. Oh boy. That's it for today. And we we're excited about next week. Make sure you log on. Again, it's at one tough M-U-T-H-E-R, or you can go to Pod Search, iTunes, um, wherever you want to listen to your podcast. And have a wonderful, wonderful week.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.